This morning, as I welcomed you, I forgot actually the most important crew member in the congregation this morning. I got so excited by all the folks from Indianapolis and all over the area that uh, I almost forgot that Randy Vecchia and his wife Megan are here. Uh, they are missionaries that we support. And uh, it's not often we get to see them because they're leading worship in another church in Grove City, but it's really good to see your faces. And uh, we don't really care about you. We want to see Lily after the service uh, and, and be able to do that. But uh, welcome to the two of you. Blessings uh, to you. I'm going to start in an odd place, but you know that about me. Uh, we're going to start with Ben Horowitz. Anybody familiar with Ben Horowitz? Show of hands. Ben Horowitz, an entrepreneur, um, businessman, innovator, author. He wrote a book entitled, you ready for this? What you do is who you are. What you do is who you are. Here's the base of the book. This is what Ben writes in the first chapter. Who you are is not the values you list on the wall. It's not what you say at an all-hands. I guess that's like a staff meeting. It's not your marketing campaign. It's not even what you believe. It's what you do. What you do is who you are. And this book aims to help you do the things that you need to do so you can be who you want to be. Those of you here last night, or last week, I'm hoping in your mind going, that's not what Pastor Rick said last week. Right? How how does that jive? Now, I will be the first one to admit that, that Mr. Horowitz has me hands down on what it means to build a business, to be successful in this world. And it's not even my aim to discredit his philosophy here from a worldly perspective. But listen, it is my aim to warn us as God's people that this is not a philosophy of the Scriptures regarding our spiritual identity. And yet it is often, listen... It is often something that is preached and practiced in the church today, that somehow we think we are what we do. And we often fall prey to defining Christianity and ourselves by what we do or what we don't do, that that somehow our behavior defines us, that we equate good with Christian. And so we strive for the no smoking, no drinking, no chewing, and no dating girls who do, right? And the reality is, is that becomes our aim, that becomes what it is that we set out to be, and we think that in doing so, somehow we are living a Christian life. I want us to look quickly at last week's message, because some of you weren't here, right? And because it is so important to understand this week's text. So really quickly, uh, turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. And last week we focused on these verses. And I'll quickly give you the three points and then we'll move to this week's text. He says this, If then you have been raised with Christ. Ah, see that. See, the identity that you have in Christ, your identity is in whose you are. If then you have been raised with Christ, therefore then seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, 
then you will also appear with him in glory. The three thoughts, I'm sure you remember, those of you that were here, was this. See your identity in Christ, and out of seeing your identity in Christ, that, that it's in who you are, not in what you do, that you therefore then can seek the things of Christ. And as you seek the things of Christ, you will set your minds on those things. I mentioned at the last part of that message that it's it's like a, a an engine in a caboose, right? And, and to evaluate your lives based on this, is the engine of your life what you do or who you are? Listen, Ben Horowitz says that the engine of your life is what you do and it will make you the caboose of who you are. The scriptures say something very different. Colossians 3, 1 through 4 says something very different, that indeed the engine is who we are. And the caboose that it pulls is what we do. That our spiritual identity then is what defines us. But it raises an important question, which moves us to our text this morning, but so important to get that piece before we get to this text. It raises this important question. Is there any value, therefore, then in what we do? Is what we do unimportant? And the answer to that is... (laughs) The reality is is that what we do is absolutely important, right? That there is value in it. Because listen, in the church, if we've made a mistake in legalism and judgmentalism, in believing that somehow what we do determines who we are, then we've equally made the mistake, sometimes on the other end of that, of easy believism, in the sense that we just believe that we're Jesus, so it doesn't really matter what we do. Thanks for playing. So, so what's the answer? How do those things mesh? Well, fortunately, the church in Colossae had the same problem. And they had a tremendous man who spoke into their lives named the Apostle Paul. So let's uh, go indeed to the text this morning. And I try to give you a short line to the text um, each week, today's sermon short line is this. When you know that you are in Christ. Right? When you know that you are in Christ. Raised with His resurrection. It will make a radical difference in what you do. In short, when you know who you are. It will make a radical difference in what you do. I would even go as far to say is this. Some of you might get rattled. It's okay, I like to rattle you. That if who you are hasn't made a radical difference in what you do, then it probably means you're not who you think you are. I'll let that settle in. Hear it this way. What we do, our our text today is a thermometer to who you are, but not a thermostat. You, You know the difference between a thermometer and a thermostat? Right? A thermostat in our house is the thing that my wife and I fight over. Right? But it's the thing that sets the temperature. So when she was out of town for nine days, Scott and I set the temperature way back. It was comfy. When she came home, all of a sudden, it's hot. Right? Because the thermostat sets the temperature. But the thermometer measures what it is that the temperature is at, right? So, so you understand the thermostat sets, but the thermometer measures. Uh, Colossians 3, 1 through 4 is the thermostat. Colossians 5 through 17 becomes the thermometer. You ready for that today? 
Here we go. Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 17. Covenant Church, let's help our visitors this morning and the things that you have learned. Who is it that wrote the book of Colossians? Paul did. did. That's right. We get excited about that because the super apostle is an amazing man of God that has spoken into the life of the church and continues to speak into the life of the church today. And who did he write it to? The church of Colossae, who was a messed up group of people. Right? Messed up, but Paul calls them holy, set apart, Beloved. How about that? That's good news for us, right? And then, why is it that he writes it? To make much of Jesus. Because somehow the Colossae Church, I don't know if you can associate with this or not, but has lost sight of the real reason in which they worship. And so he writes to them to make much of Jesus. Listen, we will make much of Jesus by doing who we are, by running after spiritual maturity in the way prescribed here by Paul. And we'll see it in three chunks today. Ready? Three chunks. I'll read a chunk. We'll talk about it a bit and we'll get to the next two. So let's start in Colossians chapter three, verse five. Here it is. Here's the thermometer of measuring where we are in our spiritual journey. It says this, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator." Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. There's a lot there, maybe more than anything in these verses, though. What I want us to see is the radical nature that Paul teaches with regard to addressing our sin. What does he say? Put it to death. Put it to death. One of the ways that we know that we are doing who we are, that we are running after spiritual maturity, is that we are putting our sins to death. The first image that I got was not Rock'em Sock'em Robots, although that's not bad. The first image that I thought of was (laughs) Whack-A-Mole. Do you remember remember Whack-A-Mole? Anybody play Whack-A-Mole, right? So somehow I feel like this with my sin, right? It comes up and I beat it, and then it comes up again and I beat it again, and I'm I'm always looking for one that's going to come up, and and I'm trying to Whack-A-Mole it. But you know what? It falls far short. This was not Holy Spirit-led. Whack-A-Mole is not the illustration. You know what the real game is? Behead-A-Mole. It's not as popular. Maybe you haven't played it. It's even a little gruesome. But listen to what Paul says. He says, man, you whack-a-mole, it's coming back. What you need to do is behead-a-mole. It ain't coming back. You need to put that sin to death. Matt Chandler has said, what I have found is that more often than not, we don't put sin to death. We just want to control it. We want to train it. And we don't necessarily want it to die. He goes on, he says, here is how it shows back up. Because you don't want to murder it, and because you don't, because you want it to be your pet, right? Then when you get tired and frustrated, when you get angry, or when you feel entitled, and somebody isn't giving you what you think you are owed, you run to that sin for comfort, rather than to the God of the universe for comfort. 
He says, this is why so many of us get stuck in this cycle of sin where you do really well for a season, anybody know there, and then you fall back into it. It's because you haven't tried to kill it and put it to death. You have simply tried to train it. Yikes. Chandler says later on in that message, he says, I think some of the reasons that a lot of us are stuck in frustration for a long time is that we are simply not violent with our sin. I read a preacher this week that compared it to getting a finger stuck in a rolling press. You know those big rolling presses, right? And he said this this whole thing is like getting your finger stuck in a rolling press. You know what happens after your finger gets stuck in a rolling press? Your, your hand's not going in. And it's going to actually, this is gross, I know, but it's going to, it's going to take your whole body. So what do you have to do? you got to cut it off. Right? If you don't want to get the whole thing sucked in, you got to cut it off. That's gruesome. Everybody's going, ooh, yuck. Aye. That's what Paul's saying with our sin. Don't just hate it. Kill it. Don't just train it. Destroy it. Put it to death. And if you think that's gross, I don't apologize. Jesus was gross. Don't quote me on that. (laughs) Jesus said gross things. How about that? Matthew 18, verses 7 through 9. You know this, right? Woe to the world for temptation to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, train it to do better. It's not what it says. It says cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. It's not often preached, right? Now, listen, is Jesus telling us to self-mutilate? No, he's not telling us to self-mutilate. What's he telling us? You have not taken sin nearly seriously enough. And the reality is, is what Paul says here. Listen, we need not train it like it's some pet in our life. We need to kill it. We need to put it to death. And for good reason. Do you hear it in our text? Verse 6. Why do we put it to death? On account of the fact that our sin is going to meet the wrath of God, which is coming. (laughs) The wrath of God is coming on our sin. We all go to Old Testament things where the earth opens up and everybody gets sucked in or there's a lot of water that comes, kills everybody. You know, we, we think of that and you go, oh, that's the Old Testament God, that whole wrath thing. No, listen. Aquila, Priscilla, I think they lied once in the New Testament and they died immediately, right? Oh, okay. Well, that's just that old, the first culture thing. Certainly not today. Listen, hogwash. The reality is, is that the wrath of God is coming. And a gospel moment here, right? So, parenthesis around this, but maybe helpful for some. The wrath of God is coming. It's going to do two things. One of two things. It's either going to send you to hell, or it's going to fall on Jesus. It's going to do one of two things. The wrath of God, it's going to send you to hell, or it's going to fall on Jesus on your behalf. Now, somebody might be here going, um, I think I like B. 
right? The the health thing doesn't sound good. I I like the idea. How how do I do that? Listen, we trust in the Lordship of Christ. We trust indeed that God came for us in Christ, that He died for us in Christ, that He rose again for us in Christ, and that in Christ we were with Him. But you know what that means? This whole idea of trusting the Lordship of Christ? It means killing your sin. Putting it to death. So there is hope with this sense of the oncoming wrath of God. But that wrath of God is met only when we trust Christ. Let's be honest. We still have sin in our lives that we love. Sin in our lives that we've somewhat learned how to train. The Church of Colossae had a bunch. It's fun to look at somebody else's sin, but maybe as we look at someone else's sin, this might resonate, right? Where does Paul start with the sin of Colossae? Sexual immorality. You're going, I'm good there. Hold on. The the, the word here, Greek word here, is actually porneia. You might know and recognize an English term that some of you are way too familiar with. That reality of pornography is sexual immorality. Listen, it's not just about having sex before you're married. It's about lust. It's about sexual fantasy. It's about allowing here, as we will see in the Church of Colossae, to allow your mind to go to any place but Jesus, quite frankly. He starts with sexual immorality. He moves to impurity, to passion. Not not passion for Jesus, but passion for evil desire that leads to covetousness, wanting what other people have, that then becomes idolatry. Don't raise your hands, but is anybody with me, right? Because if you somehow think you made it through the first phase, you're lying. But, but I'd like you to see the second phase. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, dirty jokes. And Paul's making it real here for the Church of Colossae. And in case you think you're still free and clear, <laughs> you're lying to yourself, which happens to be the next thing. Lying to one another, right? And I believe verse 11 points directly to a judgmental spirit. A spirit of racism. And listen, if you haven't found yourself yet, just come talk to me after service. After about five minutes, I'll be able to find one of them for you. As I explain the 50 that are in me. Right? You hear it? He's speaking to the church of Colossae, but he speaks to us and he's saying, listen, these are the things that you need to put to death. We have sin in our lives, and a part of being in Christ, of making much of Jesus, or running to maturity in Christ, is not just learning to train our sin, even hate our sin, but to put our sin to death. The second chunk this morning is put on, therefore, what is holy. Verse 12, put on then, love this verse, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, 
kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Ben Horowitz, in his book, What You Do Is Who You Are, has five principles for doing this. As much as I don't like his premise, I I did like one of his principles, although even once I began to read one of his principles, the only thing I really liked is the illustration that he used. Right? One of the principles on being able to be what you do is dress for success. One of the five principles of being uh, defining your, who, who you are by what you do is he says it's the way you, you dress. I, I don't like the principle, but I love the illustration. He points out a guy by the name of Francois Toussaint Louverture. Any of you history fanatics know Francois? Oh, good. I love it when you're ignorant and don't know people that I get to introduce you to, right? Here, here it is. He was born as a black slave in 1743 in a land we know called Haiti. His parents referred to him as a child as being sick, a sickly stick. He would only grow to be five foot two. There's a couple people here today that can resonate with that. There is much to share about his amazing story, but here's the, the, I'll run to the end. He, he became a gifted horseman who over time was elevated to drive the coach of his estate's attorney. He received an education, therefore, and was freed by his owner in 1776. And he would go on to lead the, listen, the only successful slave revolt in modern history, which has given Haiti and the Dominican Republic their freedom today. And one of the ways that he did that is that he dressed the slaves in elaborate uniforms. He said instead of feeling as if they were poor and disenfranchised slaves, they felt as if they were soldiers. And in doing so, he gave them confidence to defeat the challenges in front of them from the French and from the Spaniards. Paul says here that as God's chosen ones, hear it, that's who you are as God's chosen ones. Holy, that's who you are. Beloved, that's who you are. That in being who we are, we have a wardrobe that is beyond measure. Listen, that because of who we are, because of where the thermostat has been set, we have a heavenly wardrobe. And the instruction, the the thermometer of whether we are truly living in Christ, racing toward maturity, and making much of Jesus, is whether we're actually putting it on. You got it! It's yours! Take it off the hanger and put it on! Are we displaying the nature of Jesus given to us in order that we might display it to the world? D.A. Carson, in a book called For the Love of God, says this, People do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, I love that phrase, you might want to remember that, Grace-driven effort, grace being the engine, effort being the caboose, right? People do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness. Prayer and obedience to Scripture and faith and delight in the Lord. You know what Carson's saying, right? So when when you are uh, completely exhausted, completely tired, this is me on Sunday afternoon, is your default, I think I'll do some Bible study. 
Probably not. When you're extremely exhausted, when you get to the end of your rope, the place that you drift to, is it, I think I'll pray for an hour. No, listen, Carson's point is, is we don't drift towards holiness. There's an intention out. There's a grace-driven effort to get there. We've got to put it on. It's there. It's been given to us, but we've got to put it on. Carson goes on. He says, we drift towards compromise, and we call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience, and we call it freedom. We drift towards superstition, and we call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control, and we call it Relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we've escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. (laughs) Carson's point is that unless we intentionally dress ourselves in the holy wardrobe given to us, we will look like the world. So, so listen, how are we going to lead a revolt against the slavery of sin in our lives? Like Louverture led a revolt against slavery in Haiti. I'll tell you how. We will dress ourselves in the wardrobe given to us in Christ. What is that? Well, listen. Put on compassionate hearts. Kindness. Humility. Meekness and patience. Bearing with one another, forgiving one another as Christ has forgiven you. you. You get the imagery? So tomorrow morning, get it out of bed, right? Choosing the clothes that you're going to wear and you're putting them on. Here's, here's a spiritual application. Say, hey, this shirt, it's compassion. I'm going to put that on today. These pants, that's forgiveness because I'm going to work and that guy I really don't like is going to be on my raw nerve in 30 seconds. So while I'm that, I get the belt of bearing with one another, right? <laughs> you, you get it? You don't go to work. You don't go to school naked. you got to get dressed. And we need to dress ourselves in these things. And, and I love the Apostle Paul because he starts these lists and then he just enters into worship, doesn't he? And he goes and he goes and he goes and he goes. And he does it again here, right? to believe that his writing has become this place of worship that he gets caught up in as he describes the wardrobe. And it's marked by the ands, the kias in the Greek, right? He says, and above all these, so you got to put all these things on. Oh, wait, 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 wait. And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony or perfect unity. And let, and, and, oh yeah, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. I, th- I thought on these two though. Here Paul seems to indicate we not only put on that which has been given to us to know whose we are, but we put on that which allows us to know that we're in this together. You understand the qualifiers here? That we do this to make perfect unity. That we do this that we're called one body. It's the principle in some schools that we use school uniforms. When we were in school, we hated school uniforms. But I like the principle here by virtue of what Paul is saying is that when you put on the uniform of holiness... When you go to work and when you go to school, you go, <laughs> you're like in the club. This is good. Let's do this together. Right? So help me to love. Help me to bring peace. Because we're together. It doesn't matter whether you're red, yellow, black, or white. You are precious in His sight. Right? It doesn't matter whether you're poor or rich. It doesn't matter whether you're an Ohioan or a Pennsylvanian. 
I'm going to get real. It doesn't matter whether you love Penn State or Ohio State. Or Michigan State. Yeah. And it's going to get real, real. You ready? It doesn't matter whether you're Republican or Democrat. Okay, we'll go quickly, right? Now, when we dress in the wardrobe of Christ, there is no difference between us that separates us. It's a love that binds us. It's a peace that makes us one. That's what we dress in. And then lastly, he goes, oh yeah, and this, be thankful. Because you know what we do? A preacher told me I had to be compassionate. Preacher told me I had to like forgive that guy. Preacher told me I have to bear with those people that are a pain in my rear. Preacher told me I've got to do these things. No, listen. Listen to what Paul says. Be thankful. It's not you got to. Listen, it's you get to. Covenant people, you've heard that before, haven't you? It's not you got to. It's you get to. The wardrobe's set out. Look, what am I going to wear today? Not because I have to. Not because I got to. But because I get to. Put on gratitude in making much of Christ. It leads us to our last chunk. Verse 16, Paul, in describing this enormous reality of what we do to measure that which we are, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And then this this statement, it's like, in case you didn't get it, here it is, and whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God, the Father through Him. Last thought is this. Put on praise. Right? We put to death the earthly things. We, we, we put on the holy things. And it causes us to end here, to put on praise. Because of who you are, resurrected with Christ. Listen, you can kill sin and clothe yourself in righteousness. You can. Praise leaders among us this morning. Can I just say that I I don't know that there's any better reality to put in your heart to motivate you to worship and leading others to worship than resonating with this thought when you stand before a group of people. God has made me in such a way that I can put death to sin and clothe myself in righteousness. And so therefore, I've come. I've come now to teach it. I've come to admonish it. I'm finding my brother. I'm finding my sister. And I'm saying, listen, let's help each other with this. I'm coming to teach it. I'm coming to admonish it. You worship leaders, you automatically go to this last place though, right? No, we need to sing hymns and psalms and spiritual songs. And and it proves that there were worship wars in the first century. Right? Because Paul wasn't going to leave anybody out. Some want to sing psalms. Some want to sing hymns. Some want to sing spiritual songs. He says, I don't care what you sing. I want this to rise up. That you have been empowered. This is who you are. That you can put sin to death and dress yourself in righteousness. Ah, from that place, worship.
So how about this? I'm going to invite the praise team up, but I'm going to tell them to stay off mics because I want to hear you sing a song that you know. Can, can you hear it this morning? Listen, as they come, can you, can you hear it? You have the power to put death to sin and to clothe yourself in righteousness so that we might sing the doxology. Right? So will you stand with me? And, and begin, I, I know I get all wound up, right? Because you get wound up just for a second. And allow this to come to the surface that we might sing together. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise 